Thanks, Hisa. I know he's probably uh, feeling a little better after the semester has come to a close, and he can enjoy music again. Um, okay, I'm going to start a little jingle that you're familiar with, and I want you to uh, finish it off for me. You ready? Ba-da-da-da-da. I'm loving it. All right, what's it for? McDonald's. Okay, this is, this is a, a random question, but does anybody know who wrote that? Little ditty. Farrell Williams. So Farrell's the guy who wrote the song Happy, popular artist. He's the one that wrote that little ditty for McDonald's. Here's what's interesting about that. Farrell worked at McDonald's as a young man and was fired three times. <laughs> so how ironic is that? But life is filled with ironies, and as Kyle told us last week, so is the book of Jonah. Here we have the prophet of God, called to speak for God, who actually runs from God. We see pagan sailors cry out to God before Jonah does. Jonah views that great fish as a prison from which he cannot break free, and yet it was God's intent to use it as a means of rescue. Here we have a man who refuses to show God's mercy, who's ultimately saved by God's mercy. Kyle mentioned last week if he was instructing a creative writing student as they're working through Jonah, he would say, ease up on the irony. (laughs) Because as we'll see this morning, it continues to come on strong. So as I thought about that, I thought, well, why such use of that particular, particular literary tool? Because if you look throughout Scripture, you'll see that irony is a very common uh, reality in Scripture. In fact, if you look at the parables, it's what made them so powerful. They were ironic. They had a, a twist that you didn't see coming. Well, I think at least in part is because irony is a humbling reality. We might laugh at Jonah, kind of chuckle at his behavior, when in fact we know we're a lot like Jonah. We can be so forgiven by God, and yet so unforgiving towards others. We can so freely receive God's grace, and yet so unwillingly give it away sometimes. I believe the irony reveals the disparity between us and God. Even God said, as far as the heavens are from the earth, so far are my ways different than your ways, and my thoughts different than your thoughts. And yet so often, we make a judgment about God based on what we think he should do. Many times we're disappointed with God because he doesn't respond like we think he should. We employ our finite wisdom to draw conclusions about an infinite God. How ironic. And also how dangerous. Because our relationship with God is ultimately based on trust. A trust that very often exceeds our own understanding. To the point that when something doesn't make sense in my mind, I have the ability to see beyond that and trust God's heart. And as we'll see this morning, this is where Jonah really struggles. He rejects 
what he does not understand. I think that's the reason his faith is like such a roller coaster. And the true, same thing is, is true for you and I. If my stability depends on my own understanding, my life will be filled with doubt. But I, if I can learn to trust God's heart, even when I don't understand his ways, that's what brings stability to my faith and your faith. That's what brings consistency in our obedience. Trusting the infinite wisdom of a loving God is the cornerstone of our faith. So before we look at our passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you, I just pray that our hearts are open, that you would work in miraculous ways to speak through me, to speak to your people, to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see your hand at work to the praise and glory of your name. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll turn to Jonah chapter 3. Sorry, I'm going to need some water this morning. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Let's pick up where we left off last. How many of y'all read ahead? Hey, that's better than last week. I'll consider that a bonus. All right. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city in a, a one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I want to stop there. The language there at the beginning of chapter 3 is almost identical to what we read back in chapter 1. As we can see, God has given Jonah a second chance. He, he makes the very same request, and this time Jonah complies. He says, Jonah, get up and go, and Jonah got up and went. The trip from Israel to Nineveh probably took at least a month of travel during that time, and when Jonah arrives in Nineveh, it would have been hard to know exactly where to begin. Several times in our passage, we see it being identified as a great city. In verse 3, it calls it an exceedingly great city and goes on to explain that it took three days just to, to get around this very large place. Part of this had to do with its size, but I think part of it had to do with its influence. Uh, in many ways, Nineveh was like the New York City of Assyria. What happened in Nineveh had an impact around the world. It was a, a place of great influence as well as great size. So Jonah steps into this great city and begins his prophetic announcement on day one, it tells us. He wastes no time proclaiming the impending judgment of God. What's interesting is in the Hebrew language, it literally is only five words. It is easily the shortest prophetic announcement in all of Scripture. Jonah just steps in and says, 40 days and Nineveh overturned. That's all he said. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of why. There's no call to repentance. Jonah simply announced, 40 days and Nineveh will be utterly destroyed. 
Now, at this point, if you read the chapter ahead of time, you're probably thinking, this is never going to work. Because I'm not even sure, as I think about the life and character of Jonah, that he really put his heart into this one. In fact, in my mind, I see Jonah walking around and saying something like this. 40 days, 40 days, it's going to be destroyed. Nineveh is going to be destroyed, 40 days. That's kind of the impression that I get of what kind of emotion he might put into this announcement. And so why would these powerful foreigners listen to this no-name prophet, Jonah? This is a bustling city. There's all kinds of noise and activity. Why would they pay any attention to Jonah at all? There are a thousand reasons. This is never, ever going to work. Look at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let him call on God earnestly, that each man turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. Oh, the irony. A thousand reasons why it will never work, and yet it does. This great city is a three days walk, and yet on day one, the news spread like wildfire. It reaches the outskirts of the city before Jonah does. It says nothing about any other words past day one. The response of the Ninevites is immediate. It is unanimous. And apparently, it's sincere. Jonah spoke five words, and the Ninevites believed. Think about that. I'll be honest with you, it's a little frustrating. I don't know how much time I spend and how many sermons I've given, but I have never seen a response like that. Five words, and there's a spiritual revival. But in all honesty, let's think about that. What does that tell you about what's going on here? Are the Ninevites believing because of Jonah's heart-stirred sermon? Are they believing because of all the miraculous signs? I don't see any mention. What this is telling us is that it is the work of God. As Jesus proclaimed, no man comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. We know in Scripture that it tells us that each of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. And you've heard me say this again before, so listen again. <laughs> dead people don't move. Dead people don't move. God has to move first. There is a work of salvation going on here, and it is a work of God. 
Notice that verse 5 says, the people of Nineveh believed in God. The word used in Hebrew for believe is not just knowing or believing about what someone said. It's actually believing in a person. It's trusting in an individual. It expresses this idea that the Ninevites are not putting their trust in what Jonah had to say. They're putting their trust in God. And it makes sense. They don't know Jonah from the hole in the wall. He's probably not putting his heart into it. So they're not trusting in his integrity or the power of his message. It was five words. Instead, they're putting their faith in the integrity of God. Even the king of Nineveh demonstrates a heart of repentance. Look at what it says in verse 9 or verse 6. Says he rose up from his throne. He removed his royal robe. He put on clothes of a peasant. And he sits on the ground. See, sackcloth is a garment made out of goat skins, typically worn by the poor or those who are mourning. It's an outward sign of inward humility. And he puts out a decree that this must be the dress of all the inhabitants of Nineveh to express outwardly an inward repentance of their hearts. You'll notice that there's no class or section of that society who was exempt. The Ninevites knew they were guilty. He said, we must repent of our wicked ways and the violence of our hands. And we've talked about how significant that was for this culture. The Ninevites knew they were guilty. And they were pleading for God's mercy. And notice, they don't make any assumptions that their actions will be sufficient. Look at what they say in verse 9. Who knows? Maybe. Just maybe God will turn and relent. They understand that God is under no obligation to pardon their sins. If they are going to be saved, they will be saved by grace. And they understand that. Now again, I don't know about you, but as you're reading this, it seems somewhat unimaginable, doesn't it? it, it even, we even question, could this be true? I mean, did this really happen? You've got some great scholars who study Scripture for many years who have a lot of doubts about what's going on here. Did they really turn from all their gods? How long did this last? Well, all I know is this. Last week we looked at a passage that Jesus spoke about. And Jesus himself said that they will be at the judgment. And when they stand before God at the judgment, they will be condemning those who did not believe. So, so that tells me that this is real. That their repentance is sincere. Yes, it's hard to imagine. But this is a work of God. Here we see a wicked people who recognize their sin. And here's what's, I think, most gut-wrenching of it all. Here are these people who recognize the wickedness of their sin, and yet God's own people refuse to repent. You'll remember I told you about the contemporary prophets that lived at the same time that uh, Jonah lived. One of them was Joel. 
Okay? You don't need to turn there. But I want you to listen to uh, part of the prophecy that Joel was giving to the nation of Israel. And you just tell me how close this is to what we just saw. Listen to what they're being called to. Joel chapter 1, verse 13. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the libation are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. The Ninevites believed a message that God's own people refused to accept. And not just once. God gave this message to the Israelites over and over again. Nineveh's response is an indictment of Israel's stubbornness. They saw miracles. They heard moving sermons, yet they refused to believe. And I believe in part, at least in large part, it's because they put their faith in a system, not a person. They followed a list of man-made rules instead of pursuing a relationship. And like we've talked about before, our faith must be viewed through the lens of a relationship. Our actions are a response to a person. A God who speaks to the depths of our heart and calls us to put our trust in Him. That's true for them, and it's just as true for you and I. Look at verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. The God who sees our heart saw that their heart had changed. Another reason I think it was sincere. And he relented. Instead of bringing calamity, God brings forgiveness. Their actions apparently reflect a, a sincere change of heart. They turned from their wicked ways and turned to God. And in response, God relents. Now, the question I have here is this. Did God just change his mind? Is that what happened? It sure seems that way. Did he have one plan in mind, but then was kind of caught off guard by the Ninevites? So he gave them something different than he had originally planned? Is that what just happened? In a word, no. No. And here's why. God is never taken by surprise. He's never baffled by a certain turn of events. He's never coerced, and his perfect will is never altered. His actions always align with his character, and he is always just. He is always faithful. Events like this are hard for you and I to understand because we look at them from a human perspective. But remember, he's made it clear, his ways are not as our ways. And his thoughts are not as our thoughts. God is not moved to anger as we are. 
He does not experience disappointment and frustration like we do. And the reason is is because those emotions that we experience are very often happening because something occurs that we didn't see coming. And so we're frustrated or disappointed or angry. And that's not what happens with God. He's never surprised or caught off guard. What appears to be a change of mind to us was his plan all along. And we have scripture that supports this idea. You don't need to turn there, but you might write it down. 1 Samuel, or yeah, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29 says this. And also the glory of Israel, speaking of God, will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. It's pretty clear, isn't it? See, God gives us choices, and he responds to those choices in a way that's consistent with his character. If we turn from God, he makes a promise. He makes a promise that our life will have heartache, it will have turmoil, and ultimately, there will be judgment. That's clear. But equally as clear. If we change our mind and instead turn from our sin and turn to him, then there's also a promise attached to that. There is forgiveness, there is grace, and there is salvation. That is precisely what we see happening in Nineveh. What is puzzling about this entire account is not what the Ninevites did. The Ninevites did. It's what Jonah did. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. That's what's most puzzling. What was pleasing in the eyes of God was utterly displeasing to Jonah. God's anger was averted, and Jonah's anger was incited. He literally says, God, I hate what you just did. This is Jonah, the one who not too long ago was singing, singing in joy and thanksgiving because of God's divine rescue. And now he boils with anger at Nineveh's deliverance. We give him a benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was frustrated because the Ninevites were responding in a way that his own people were not. Maybe he was confused as to why God would show mercy to one of Israel's enemies. That, that makes sense. But at the very best, or at the very least, we see a prophet who has very little regard to human life. Someone who has a bitter hatred to those who have experienced God's mercy. At best, Jonah is someone who misunderstood God's mercy and his plan of redemption. His selfishness has robbed him of the joy 
of God's miraculous work of salvation. We see that clearly in the prayer that he prayed. If you go back and look, circle every time you see I, me, or my. You'll find it no less than eight times in that very brief prayer. He basically says, God, I knew that this was going to happen. And that's why I ran. I did what you said, and now look what you've done. And then at the end of verse uh, 2, he quotes Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, when he says, Thou art gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Now, you might remember in our study of Exodus in the fall, we saw the, the context in which these words were spoken. Just as a reminder, Moses is up on the mountain getting the second pair of commandments. The first one's destroyed because of Israel's rebellion. So Israel's being given a second chance. And within that context, this is God speaking. And God is speaking in a way that reveals something about himself, his character. So in chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord says this. The Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, the, the transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on their children and on the grandchildren in the third and fourth generations. That's the passage that Jonah quotes. But did you notice he left something out? He spoke very clearly about you relent concerning calamities. You forgive sins, essentially is what he's saying. But he mentions nothing about how the guilty go unpunished. They never go unpunished. God is a just God. But you see, Jonah couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that the Ninevites were in fact sincere. That God wasn't uh, letting the, the, the guilty go. He's a just and righteous judge. See, Jonah focuses on the divine attributes of compassion and forgiveness and views them as a regrettable weakness. Jonah wants justice. But listen to me clearly on this. Only a fool wants justice in the absence of grace. If that were true, there would be no salvation. If all we get is justice in the absence of grace, there will be no salvation. Jonah is arguing with God by complaining about his goodness. He rejects that which he does not understand. God doesn't do what Jonah believes he should have done. In the end, Jonah simply does not trust God's heart. That's the issue here. Bad theology always leads to disappointment with God. And that disappointment, as we see here, is rooted in pride. There's a parable that Jesus tells that I think helps bring this home to us 
because we can relate to what he says. I don't want us to turn there. Turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God, and so he tells this parable to help the listeners and you and I to understand how his economy works. Listen to what he says, beginning in chapter 20 of Matthew, verse 1. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarii for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went about the third hour, so the first plea probably was somewhere around 7 a.m., early in the morning, okay? As people are just getting started on their work day, there were people who needed a job. He finds them and says, hey, I've got some things to do in my vineyard. We agree, a denarii a day, come on in, glad to have you. Well, then a couple hours later, third hour is about 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and those, he said, you too, go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went about the sixth hour. Now we're about noon. And then the ninth hour, we're at three. And he did the same thing. And then about the eleventh hour, which is about 5 p.m., he saw others standing and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because there's no one who's hired us. And he said to them, Well, then you too, go into the vineyard. And then when evening, about 6 p.m., had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour, an hour previously, came to him, each one received a denarii. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. And they also received, each one, a denarii. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the scorching heat all day long. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did we not agree with the denarii for the day? Take what is yours. Go your way. But I wish to give to the last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. As we mentioned, this is a parable about the kingdom. God is the landowner. In many ways, we can consider ourselves the workers. The question that God asks in verse 15 is haunting to me. He says, are your eyes jealous because I am generous? Another way to look at that is this. Do you want others to have less so that you can have more? Is that what you want? You see, the disappointment of the workers was based on their perspective of what seemed fair. We're honest, we hear the par parable and we think, you know, it kind of got a point. Those one-hour guys got the same thing as those ten-hour guys or those nine-hour guys. But that's because we're looking at it from a worker's point of view. As the worker, we see 
diminishing profits. When others get more, we get less, right? But from God's perspective, he sees an abundance of grace. The more people that are inside his kingdom, the more grace there is in abundance. You see, like Jonah, the disappointment of the workers is rooted in pride. They don't like what God did because it doesn't seem fair to them. From their perspective, it's not what they would have done. But when we use our finite wisdom to draw conclusions about the wisdom of an infinite God, we're bound and determined to get it wrong. If it was up to us to determine what was fair, we would never have the gospel. <clears throat> the entire message of the gospel is not what we would expect. A holy God showing mercy to a sinful people. Instead of uh, creating distance between them, what does he do? He draws near. Instead of requiring their life from them, what does he do? He gives his life in their stead. Here we have the king of all creation not coming to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The entire gospel is an upside-down theology, which is why Jesus says, in my economy, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And the reason he says that is because those who believe that they deserve it least are the ones who experience it most. And those who think they deserve it most very often experience it the least. Just think of the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair as she cried out to him in worship. And what did Jesus say? She has loved much because she has forgiven much. Think of the prodigal son, but consider the older brother and the joy that was robbed from him in selfishness and pride because he didn't think he was being treated fairly. So let me ask you, are you jealous because God is generous? Do you want others to have less so that you can have more? Is it possible, just consider, is it possible that your disappointment with God might be rooted in pride, judging his actions based on what you think seems fair? See, the irony's humbling, isn't it? If my stability depends on my own understanding, I can assure you my life will be filled with doubt. Proverbs tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. As we grow in our faith, one of the signs of maturity in my mind is that we trust God more and we trust ourselves less. Our belief in the infinite wisdom of a loving God is the cornerstone of our faith to the point that even when we don't understand his ways, we can still trust his heart. 
This is what brings stability to our faith. It's what brings consistency to our obedience. And so as we wrap up this morning, I want to give you three things that I would encourage you to consider, to investigate in your own life, just to see where your heart is. And I'm going to give you the three up front and touch on them briefly. Here they are. Your prayers, your money, and your time. Write them down. Your prayers, your money, and your time. First of all, look at your prayers. Listen to yourself. Are you like Jonah where they're filled with me, my, and I? Or do you turn your heart to the Lord so that your focus is on him? I struggle with this just like you do. And if I were honest, a lot of mine are filled with me, my, and I. So here's one of the things that I've done that I've found helps recalibrate my heart, okay? Psalm 145. Take some time this week and read Psalm 145, which, by the way, is a prayer. Look at the focus and heart of that prayer and then measure your own against it. And if, like mine, they're out of alignment, then recalibrate your heart to put them in step with what you're going to read in Psalm 145. Set your heart on the Lord so that your prayers reflect a focus on Him. So Psalm 145 this week. The second thing is your money. Where do you spend your money? Again, is it on me, mine, I? <laughs> the things that I want, the things that I need? Or do you look to invest in things that might be a blessing to someone else? Are you a giver with a cheerful and sincere heart? The same could be said about the last one, your time. Again, what comes first? Me, mine, I? Or do you find it important to consider the needs of others is more important than your own? I believe with all my heart that if we look at those three areas in particular, we're going to get a pretty good snapshot of where our heart is, what our mind is focused on, what we're using to judge what is happening around us. So many times we look at life from our perspective and we determine what seems good and right and fair as if we know better than God does. So let's put our trust in him. He's just, he's righteous, and he's true. And we can rest in him even when we don't understand. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you, we pray that these truths sink deeply into our heart because we recognize, as has been said by many already, we're a lot like Jonah. It is easy for us to look at our circumstances and judge them based on our perspective, what seems fair, what seems right. And then we take that judgment and apply it to you. Because if it's not fair, then you must not be fair. If it doesn't seem right, then you must not, not be right. But God, how prideful is that? That a finite person would judge the infinite wisdom of a loving God. Father, I pray that this week, that as a church family, that we might recalibrate our hearts. I pray that people in this room spend time in Psalm 145 this week to recalibrate their heart to center it on you to trust in you and find that you are faithful thank you for your graciousness because apart from that there is no salvation 
We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.